Make sure to not pick a sex criminal. In honor of nobody, what comedian needs to become an action hero? I'm Katie Rich, and I can't explain why Vanessa Bayer would be great at this, but I think she would. She'd be the action hero you didn't see coming. Yes. Um, I'm Matt Patches. That was a better answer than mine. I'm going to go with Bob (laughs) Newhart, because I feel like they haven't done a really old person who's gone full John Wick yet. What if you put Vanessa Bayer and Bob Newhart together? I I feel like their energies would would really belong together. (laughs) Hey, it's me, David the Seven, and don't make him a superhero, but give Donald Glover a starring turn in a movie like The Raid, where he's just... His physique is moving angularly down a hallway, killing people. I would that seems more that. like Juan or something. Sure, yeah, Juan, like, like the, Juan, like the This Is America video, but turned into like the old boy <laughs> hammer hallway <laughs> sequence. Well, yes, well, you're describing exactly what I want. This Jew is about to be on Matt Patches for com- for getting the complete over of uh, Clint Eastwood. Oof, rather. Um, <laughs> if you've never seen an old, an yeah, old but he's not. Go he doesn't go John full Wick. John Wick. He's just shooting people from afar. That's not fun. I mean, it depends. That's American I guess it's Sniper all... Patches. Clonisa wasn't in At that least John Wick runs up to people and shoots like them how... straight in the chest, point blank. Right. Uh, how flexible or uh, dynamic these characters What's are. What's your Whatever. answer? Uh, I, off the top of my head, who's a comedian? I'll go with... <laughs> I'll go with Amber Ruffin. I think she has a really great screen presence, and it would be fun to see her subvert that by uh, murdering lots of people. Done. Has any late night host transitioned successfully to? Well, there were the two acting. Conan movies. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain, and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good. Then, well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine, then, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room. It's episode 341. It's Pandemic 53. It is the week of Wednesday, March 24th, 2021. That's the day that 1939 William Wyler's Wuthering Heights premiered in Los Angeles. Not to be confused with In the Heights, which is the movie. <laughs> which premiered in 1939? In, uh, in our Time Warp COVID. In podcast. the Wuthering Heights. What does uh, that look like? Let's see it. Um, I didn't ask ahead of time if we have any reviews because we, we were do. debating when we're recording our Godzilla uh. versus Kong segment. So that that was our quota for Godzilla versus Kong discussion this week. We have reviews. Yeah. Read them. This is the part where you read them. Oh. <laughs> Wake right. up! Uh, <laughs> I'm sleepy. Uh, all right, we have two new reviews here. The first, my, well, I gotta... What is happening here? My microphone was drooping down. It was as sad and <laughs> defeated as I feel. It sounded like you got caught in a hailstorm. This is uh, great I have. audio. This is great tape. I'm, I'm recording from inside one of those pulses that shoots out from the mother boxes at the start of the Snyder You're recording from inside Cherry's butt. <laughs> Boy. We had to really go back to, uh, to, to that. Yes. I didn't really understand it the first time. This is but the here connective tissue to last week. Oh, I don't need to hear more about Cherry's connective tissue. Steph underscore Nicole 15 says, my new favorite pod. That sounds promising. Hey, guys, pre-pandemic, I would listen to politics podcasts or podcasts about the news. But I got way too nervous and decided pop culture would be my new chamomile tea. I started coming here for Katie, but I stayed for the chaotic energy that everyone brings. I love this pod. Y'all are really amazing. By the way, more Charlie reviews. He's got some hot takes. Love from NYC. Shout out to NYC. I'm the only one who has not abandoned us yet. 
Steph Nicole fifteen. Charlie was born there though, so he's he gets he's the only native of all. Oh wait, no, David, were you born in New York City? Was I? Yeah, or were you born in Connecticut? My child okay. was born in yeah, New York City. Yeah, please. Uh, all right, so you and Charlie are the only uh, bona fide. Charlie is living in exile, and I am yeah. uh, living in Brooklyn. Um, <laughs> you were raised think- in exile, like like Kalel. <laughs> That's one of one of many things I have in common with Kalel. We're both <laughs> Jewish, uh, and uh, we are both very very handsome. And were uh, our face our facial hair was digitally modified. Um, spend spend a lot of time years. walking around shirtless in the cornfield. God, America would has never suffered so much as the idea of me just walking around shirtless in the cornfield. Um, anyway, uh, moving on, we have a our second and final review of the week, a long one from Big Internet. Big Internet, good name. Monica Rambeau and Tayana Paris deserved better. As a longtime listener and fan, I was disappointed the Wanda series, the Wanda series, the Wanda Vision series wrap-up, failed to include any discussion of Monica Rambeau. Though Fighting in the War Room is the only podcast I listen to that made this oversight, it's the only one I listen to where one of the hosts reads every five-star review live on air. You got us. Of all (laughs) (laughs) Using our own narcissism against us, it works every time. Of all the many valid criticisms of the finale blazing up the internet, I think the extent to which it flattened Monica and yet another blandly supportive Marvel black sidekick, all capital letters there, hasn't been discussed nearly as often and widely enough as it should. Even less attention has been paid to the careless way the same episode deployed the incredibly fraught and triggering imagery of a black woman jumping in front of bullets fired by law enforcement to protect white children. The fact this episode aired within a week of protests marking the one-year anniversary of Breonna Taylor's murder at the hands of police only underlines just how ignorant even the most well-intentioned white creators still are about race and particularly the institution of anti-black violence in America. If David is going to keep up the Marty Scorsese cosplay and once again bemoan how the grubby commercial instincts of Marvel storytelling is devaluing his precious cinema, why not bring the same heat to the way Marvel repeatedly devalues its black characters by framing them as narratively subservient to their still-majority white male heroes? I think the perpetuation of systemic racism through this figurative and literal marginalization of blackness should take equal or greater precedence over formalist concerns when discussing any form of pop culture within a reach, with a reach rather, and impact like Marvel's. As a white cis queer man, I want to give credit for much of my critiques to Charles Pulliam Moore's far superior piece on Monica Rambeau in io9. This comment is a piece. Apparently, it's well argued and long enough to qualify. Why not? And I think I would be doing a disservice to that work if I didn't use this long-winded review to call for everyone who engages in the discourse of pop culture to carefully and critically consider the representation of race and its structural implications in all art, not just black critics. A proudly intimate and contentious podcast like Fighting in the War Room is just the right place for this kind of honest, difficult, but essential and informed conversation that more majority white platforms need to start having if America is ever going to fully root out and end the violent white supremacy woven so tightly in the fabric of our society. Uh, to that, I can only say that I don't think we tend to shy away from that subject. Uh, we may have go back all. to the old guard episode <laughs> and watch me ruin everybody's um, good time. It may, not, it may not <laughs> have been at the fore of this particular episode, but um, I personally, I can only say that I found everything so vanilla and forgettable in WandaVision and certainly in its finale that um, it didn't really seem like much of an arbiter one way or the other, even though, you know, with all the eyeballs that are on it, I can understand how it can be a valuable platform for representation and for imagery that it puts in the mind of America's viewers. Um, I I was <laughs> so tuned out of the entire series that I uh, 
didn't latch onto that element of it or anything else. I definitely had that thought about her, like, jumping in front of police bullets. And it does, like, the fact that, like, we've had the year we've had about cops and, like, the cops are still have the presence that they do in the WandaVision finale does feel like either Disney or they were trapped into something that they, you know, just weren't willing to get out of. But it feels like the biggest problem with Monica Rambeau is what they Marvel does all the time, where it's like, you get the next movie, so we're just going right. to stop paying attention to you for a little while. Like, we've, we've established you so people know who you are, then you got to back out so we can put you in the next I one. I think that's, like, her ultimate utility, sort of, not that it should, and certainly in terms of, like, a hierarchy of concerns, it doesn't, but for the, the primacy of what they're trying to do in this episode, her ultimate utility is really just to set up something else and to put these pieces in question. And I'm, I'm looking at her thinking more, what does this have to do in the greater mythology of this? What am I not understanding about how everything adds up as someone who saw and instantly forgot as well, Captain Marvel, um, and is not familiar with any of these characters outside of these movies and TV shows. Um, I was sort of more busy putting together the pieces of how these things fit together. Um, yeah, but could I, I don't could think... use some resolution there. What happened to Jimmy and Darcy? Like these characters yeah, but, I mean, were it's important. Darcy you know, drove multiple a car episodes. into somebody. They got no, big, re- no resolution. To big internet's point, I mean, Marvel continues to do this. They continue to kick these things, these footballs down the field uh, and, you know, hold them out to a later date. And the Monica Rambeau character, if they're going to introduce her and give her the importance that they ultimately assign her towards the end of WandaVision... And especially if they're going to weaponize some of the imagery that the listener points out that they do, it would have been a fine opportunity to turn the show into anything rather than hurriedly flatten it back into like the most basic Marvel template. Um, and, you know, before they you get a post credit the... scene, we're gonna we're gonna have such fun time when we get to Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Yeah, I, mean, I, I wondering I about that. Was shocked to get that press release that Falcon and the Winter Soldier was their most watched premiere ever. Like for me, first of all. The, the metrics are coming from inside the house. How shocking that uh, they had inside a premiere that mouse. people watched more wow. inside the mouse, that people watched more than the latest episode of Forky Needs a Friend or whatever. Uh, Forky asked a question. Yeah, Not, good Lord. Have some respect. I'm uh, sorry. I'm confusing it with Conan O'Brien's podcast. Um, but Bucky is like maybe the least interesting character in the history of Western fiction. Uh, it's hard to imagine. Give Monica find some, own that's show. A, that's I a guess they're giving her her own movie. Hot take. You just though. saw the Snyder cut, David. I really want people to love Bucky. Words. My wife loves Bucky. I mean, in a crush way. And I don't think I'm outing her for saying this, but like people love Bucky. Come on. Uh, but he's very cute. Well, I haven't watched it. <laughs> Bucky is also the target of, of a ton of like fan fiction, and he's just he's he, people can graft anything onto Bucky. So Bucky might not be the most personality driven character, but people love Bucky. In Russia, we graft arm onto him. <laughs> he, they did a steel arm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wait, before we wrap this up, Dave, do you think that what they have ever, they have planned for Tiana Paris and Captain Marvel will be interesting and worth this wait? Do you have faith in that? Uh, I, think I would separate yes. interesting from she will exhibit superpowers. Uh, yeah, no, like just... it's like uh, I think we all agree that Tiana Paris really stood out on WandaVision. Like, do we feel like she'll get her due? Yes, yeah. I think so. I think she has some uh, unfinished issues with Captain Marvel. Like, I don't know, maybe a lot of people on Earth would if your most powerful super being abandoned you to help refugee species. But I'm also, I just I said that because uh, very specifically Falcon and the Winter Soldier is going to be Marvel trying to deal with some of its race and militaristic things at the exact same time, Ooh. which seems like a uh, balancing act. It kind of works. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, we'll talk about that. Wow. Uh, anyway. It is a big internet. This is something that we've addressed in the past. It is something that we will address in the future. And uh, if it was a blind spot in our conversation about the season finale of WandaVision, uh, we can chalk it up to A, our failings, and B, 
the uh, general uh, complete disinterest we had in talking about almost anything in the season finale of WandaVision. Um, <laughs> I but, think that's some editorializing. I think this means the system works. Yeah. Re- leave a review. If it's five stars, we read it out loud. You could actually make the entire podcast better by doing so. It's like you got a as, whole segment out of your I, review. As yeah. I think Big Internet did with this comment. Um, and uh, hopefully Marvel is listening. They are. Kevin? You know what to do, you know what to do next. Also, leave a review. I like is the, the parliament listening? <laughs> I like the idea of David taking anything to wrong. Like, we blame it on our own failings, but also Marvel's. Like, let's be clear. Whatever we've all done of wrong my is also failings, partly Marvel's fault. Exactly. Yeah. All of my failings are at least partly traceable back to Marvel and vice versa, I'd say something. <laughs> uh, but uh, I don't want to be on the hook for that. Anyway, if you would like to leave a review on the show, if you would like to potentially turn it into a segment all of its own where we effectively say nothing except for, you know, well, well-spoken comments and... Uh, We'll be mindful of it going forward. Leave us a review on iTunes at Fighting in the War Room. Hey, guys. Uh, there was a horrible shooting in Atlanta, Georgia last week that seemed to target the Asian community. And even though the police there were kind of chicken shit and not calling it a hate crime, we here at Fighting in the War Room suddenly were like, oh man, this segment we recorded, uh, we need to think about it. Why? Because we're going to talk about Albert Brooks's Defending Your Life, which you could stream right now on HBO. Uh, and, uh... It's a comedy about uh, the afterlife, and as I said on last week's episode's intro, and I'll restate now, it's a pretty gentle comedy. That's going to be the conclusion of this segment we're going to play for you. Uh, There is some casual racism towards Asians, which we were uncomfortable with, and addressed in this conversation. What you're going to hear is actually the uncut version of it. We just thought maybe wait until, you know, everybody had cooled down and we had uh, more information and uh, I think we did so responsibly, and I think this is a responsible uh, conversation about a film from a white male comedian director that we haven't canceled and is not an action hero. So, <laughs> check it out. Uh, here's uh, Defending Your Life. I am going to break our streak of talking about new, be- new movies assigned to everybody, and I assigned us all an old movie. And it's not a quarter quell, it's just today. I watched Defending Your Life because it's on HBO Max. Uh, and because even though I love broadcast news deeply and have talked about it plenty, I had never—I have not seen a lot of Albert Brooks movies, um, and I had never seen this one. And it seems to be agreed upon of the movies that he directed the best. Am I am I getting that right? Someone who knows the Albert Brooks filmography better than I do. I, I just—I I don't know the tea leaves of the consensus that well. I think that something like Modern Romance is probably tossed around a lot. I mean, real uh, okay. real life is pretty revered yeah. for its style right um but it's, uh, i think the, you know defending your life is, is a it's certainly not looking for comedy in the muslim world so. <laughs> no or the muse for that matter or the muse Albert um, brooks make one more movie i mean come on yeah go out go out with style Albert brooks come on what's uh has he been acting lately like no like drive and this is oh he was in i love you daddy he's on he's twitter does that count he is on he's he on, is twitter. on twitter i think after the i love you daddy experience he may have been ready to hang him up but. or how about when everyone thought he was going to get an oscar nomination for drive and then did not I think that, that was, that was uh, a burn was good in that yeah, well, I was good in that. I wonder if another Nicholas Winding Refn type came to him with an interesting role 
Because I think it's probably just simply like a lack of, of interesting offers. I would hope. A part I, I should hope that's that's still on its way. I um, It occurred to me halfway through watching Defending Your Life that like the way that uh, I think he, I guess he played Paul Rudd's dad and this is 40. But I feel like he and Andy Samberg are really destined to do like a father son oh. thing together. Sure, sure. I'm now I'm now realizing this should have been my secret WandaVision cameo thought. Just be like, here comes Albert Brooks. If Albert Brooks <laughs> you guys, showed you up, you guys don't know what he's doing. You can't prove me wrong. If Albert Brooks showed up in WandaVision, my my jaw would hit the floor. Truly, I would have so many questions. Playing Albert Brooks, or he would have to. But, Albert sure. Brooks as a Marvel. Has he been in a Marvel movie? He hasn't, right? No, you're no, thinking like of he... Steve Gutenberg. Not Steve. Who's? Oh no, I'm thinking of uh, not Steve. I wasn't actually confusing Steve Gutenberg with. Um, uh, what's his face? Incredibly famous comedian, Hail Hydra. Gary uh, Shandling? Gary, oh, Gary Shandling. Shandling. Yeah. But I, I was putting them in the same. But Gary Shandling and Albert Books, however, do occupy like a. Yeah, th- this was all, all how this got nodded in my head, but yes. Put Steve well. Gutenberg in the MCU. This is my big takeaway <laughs> here. <laughs> Coward. Hey, um, so defending your life, Albert Brooks comedy. Uh, it's about a guy who dies for messing with a bunch of tapes that he's gotten for his tape deck. Uh, CDs, CDs. Oh my god, the so CDs sorry. because yeah. he accidentally got the CD. Yeah, he got the this CD movie player. Came in his out car. in 1991. Uh, if you ever think that the early 90s were all gray and beige, this movie will not dissuade you because he very soon winds up in a place called Judgment City, which is where uh, if you have died, you are judged on whether or not you get to go on to the afterlife or you have to go back to Earth to try again. Was your uh, decision to watch this inspired by Soul at all? No, I actually never put that. I guess I did think about Soul while I was watching it, but no, the decision to watch it was like, what's on HBO Max and what can I handle on like a Friday night? And Back Soul, to your plot right? synopsis. But that, the... the uh, the the whole premise, the waiting room of it all, you know, yeah. Afterlife by Corey Ada is always the first thing that comes to mind, but in recent in recent uh, terms, soul. Yeah, I would say that uh, that Albert Brooks and Pixar have a very different conception of what the afterlife might look like. Yes. Uh, because Rip Torn is there for, <laughs> for Albert Brooks is, is, is playing his lawyer. Uh, and then, I mean, it's a really simple movie. Like, he's on trial. He has to go to this courtroom every day and uh, defend, watch clips from his life and all the ways in which he has failed as a person. He meets Meryl Streep, who is this woman who is apparently flawless and saves children from burning buildings and is definitely going on. And they have this uh, nice couple of dinners and they get to go eat whatever they want at restaurants and hang out and go see who they were and past lies and there's a bunch of jokes and I don't know but it's I think kind the, of the whole movie the key Extremely distinction pleasant. is that if you were just to hear that premise you would assume quite naturally that the act of defending his life was was him simply like defending his actions on the basis on the merit of their like moral value uh, and that's not what this it's movie more is about. complicated it's not, it's not about <laughs> judging whether or not he was a good or a bad person it the only metric they use these adjudicators in what seems to be a pretty forgiving system is uh, the whether or not any of his decisions or his major decisions were fear-based yeah. or if he was ever able to get over the fear that inhibits so many of us from doing so many yes, things. Yes, it's like Green Lantern, except uh, with Albert Brooks. Sure. And, sure. Uh, that not, that's not landing? Uh, and if, <laughs> you know, if, he, uh, if he doesn't pass the test like his soul hasn't several times before, he just gets put into another body and give it another world on the merry-go-round, which sounds which also, which lovely. Which sounds fine. Yeah, I was very perplexed by how determined he was not to go back to Earth, although I guess Meryl Streep moving on uh, made it well, yeah, compelling. I want to move with also, the food is yeah. delicious. In- I know, although I, I tweeted a picture of the plate that he has when he's having lunch with Rip Torn, and it just looks absolutely awful. It's like a... <laughs> 
roast chicken with tricolor pasta. Yes, and, and he and he moves the skin of the chicken. It it looks like it starts gooping or something. It looks very <laughs> gross. 90s food was. I don't think uh, I was supposed was to see that in high definition. Really, really awful. Actually, can, and it lo- let me ask a, a side question here while we're on the topic of the food in heaven, which is perfect according to the movie. Um, and you can eat as much as you want. Would you order a cheese omelet? He goes to a diner and he's told all the food is amazing and they can bring anything. And he orders a cheese omelet. Who orders a oh, cheese omelet? Oh, is it like an like a Western omelet or something? Yeah, but but he orders a cheese omelet. It still has peppers I think, in it. I think the a thing Western is omelet. that all the food you get, it doesn't. It's the it's euphoric taste doesn't really correspond to what the food item is. It's all so far beyond hmm. any taste yeah. that we've ever experienced that it's sort of beyond the food. You know, it doesn't matter what. Thank you're you eating. for unpacking that. While yeah, we're still take. here in Food of the 90s, <laughs> um, there's a scene in a sushi restaurant that mm-hmm. is based entirely on early 90s culture of sushi restaurants that I was like watching. And I'm like, I vaguely remember the type of sushi restaurant where the entire staff had to greet you and say thank you. So that's a real but, thing? I did, I, yeah, that, that is oh, not a real thing. Is that a real thing? We did not yeah. have a sushi restaurant. No, but like, I, I also don't know watching it now. Am I like, is this a like, would heaven adapt that? <laughs> I, it seems. It seems like an odd practice. Yeah, but I, 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 that I definitely, was like probably the most '90s thing about about this, for, besides the CD player thing for me. I definitely like, thought, oh yeah, a lot about the people who live in this city that looks very grim, like very, you know, they're riding around on trams, like they're in Disney World, but like those guys just work at the sushi restaurant in the afterlife, huh? That's weird. Yeah, they they're, and they're, they're, they like eat shit because they could control what they taste, but apparently, like the stuff the residents or the <laughs> Non-humans. There is maybe like one too many jokes at Asian people's expense in this movie. They come there in short succession. Certainly and... for the proportion of white people to any other type of person in yeah. this heaven. Sure. Yes. Yeah. That, Not I mean, a diverse afterlife. Yeah, that, that brought me the wrong. It's like so Albert Brooks really went off. None of it is particularly pointed, but um, it's definitely othered in a way where it's just, no. you know. Yeah, there's like a, a really sweet scene where between like uh, Meryl Streep and Albert Brooks, and they're like in the middle of their romance, and you're enjoying the chemistry, and then he makes like a squinting and thought I was Chinese joke, basically, and you're just like, what the fuck movie? Yeah, this is. Uh, there are not. Ma- I will say there the are not many moments in this movie like that. This movie has aged no, 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 pretty there's, there's... Well, pretty well. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. I think it has like a it has a pleasant core at the center of it it's not a comedy that's about how it's inevitable that we cave to fear or that human beings are just like this like living cesspool of whatnot there's around the edges like he does meet another guy and has a substantial conversation with him and that guy's like made money his money in porn books and obviously he's going to spend a longer time in judgment uh than our main character but it's not there's nothing like weird or threatening about it it's a pleasant film yeah yeah and it's all like a, basically a rom-com setup you know it's like a, about a guy who meets a girl and has to overcome an obstacle and the obstacle is like all the fear that he's experienced in his entire life yeah. so that he can move on but i i was surprised rewatching the movie which yeah it's on hbo max it's also coming to criterion just to like set the tone of 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 how acclaimed it is i guess um but i was surprised that i thought it was mo- going to be more of a rom-com from what i remembered uh mm. and there would be more of of albert brooks's character daniel and and julia the meryl streep character but you get some of that but a lot of it is him sitting in a chair being scrutinized by two afterlife lawyers flipping through old clips of his of his life there's like a lot of that in a boardroom and i thought it was interesting i'm just like 
man, you could make any movie at any level uh, back in the 1990s. Like this is I a like I like the idea of it though. If it's like it's it's a yeah, it's a rom com, and the other half is sort of like this. Uh, like because it's a trial setting, it's a very uh, dialectic conversation about fear, but like from people that they don't allow to be characters. Because like Riptorn shows up, but anytime we are about to learn more about Riptorn, nothing. One time he doesn't even show up when we think he's going to show up. You know, and, and then, then he's replaced by Buck Henry, who is uh, great and almost completely silent. But as someone yeah. who took Soul to task for the familiar Pete Doctor mistake, if I can call it that, of uh, like literally conflating characters with with their functions um, and letting sort of the metaphor take over. That's essentially what the Riptorn character is doing here. And yet it totally works for me just because Riptorn and the Riptorniness of what he's doing uh, is is a fully fleshed character to me. Like his, his like faux sincerity, it's like really hard to gauge whether or not he's actually at all invested in this case or believes anything he says or if he's just sort of lying through his teeth. But because they're in, if not heaven, then heaven's waiting room and this sort of delightful purgatory you know, you don't think that he is being malevolent anyway. I mean, there are lots of different shades that are happening in the character, and they're all really pleasant and lead you down fun thought avenues as to what this sort of job is uh, for the most part over the centuries and, and what it is to have a job in this eternity. Um, and if it's worth eating the gray gloop that doesn't really taste like anything if for the people who reside there and all these different things that I feel like the wiring of the imagination and soul is so narrow that it doesn't allow for that kind of freedom to sort of daydream i do like the idea of of thought avenues of being built into a film because that's where my brain goes in that direction a lot of times and i you're right that soul is like very much made so that you stay within the path that it is putting out there for you and i don't think it makes one better than the other but i do like that factor about defending your life like even lee grant who's playing the like dragon lady other lawyer who is like supposed to be scary like there's more to her than just like the scary other female lawyer lady yeah i thought a lot about her outfits at the end of it, you're kind of like, you know what? This all kind of went according to plan. It's not like Soul, where it's like there's a big heist and for things, or it's not like Albert Brooks's character at some point. It's like this isn't going to work for me. I'm going to be smarter than the system. It's just sort of like everything plays out, and it seems like it plays out exactly like it was supposed to. I mean, it ends with it's one character like rushing to grab another character, which is exactly like the classic Pixar ending. So yes, I mean, I also different. love uh, the the scale of movies of the '90s, where it's like man runs across highway is like, oh, here's the big action sequence. <laughs> I mean, that's good tram. Slow moving trams. They're probably at like 40 miles an hour. That shot is so impressive, or that sequence. It it is because it's like, yeah, it's obviously all being done, but. Yeah. Yeah, but back, people, back I mean, the, the modern Hollywood so undervalues the, you know. Wait, are you talking about the scene I where mean, multiple trams are going in different directions and he's running between them? What no, you- the. Oh, am I? I saw this movie a month ago by accident before I even knew we were uh, covering this. Oh, so I, can't what are you t- I think that's what we're talking uh, about. Maybe it is. I'm also thinking of the shot from Bowfinger, which has a similar effect. Uh, oh, no. I see. Okay. But, uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I yeah, guess it's, it's not, impressive. It's, it just doesn't seem. It, it's much more, it's much more uh, serious here than in Bowfinger. Sure. But I, um, it is, I think, Albert Brooks running amongst trams, which is somewhat impressive. I mean, Albert Brooks running at all, I feel, sounds impressive but, uh, and unlikely. Uh, but... He was he was of normal age. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is not like a 78-year-old man running across the highways. Uh Yes, he was. But the, um, the yeah, I, don't, I, I just feel like it's such an interesting 
way of reframing the the way that we tend to think of the polarities of good and evil and heaven and hell and all these. I mean, hell doesn't even exist in, the, in this movie. It's a very Jewish conception of uh, of the afterlife in that sense. Um, not that Jews, unfortunately, we don't believe in the reincarnation. I wish we did. I'd probably be more willing to go to temple and get invested in that. But um, the next time around, yeah, next time around. But I, uh, I, I just thought that it was, you know. I think the idea of living in fear is is very real to me. I almost wish the movie would have played into that even harder. I mean, like, I don't know if the movie would have benefited from taking a harder stance on that and, like, making him a more morally compromised person where you end up sort of, like, rooting for him anyway because he did terrible things in the name of living, you know, of living his truth and not being in fear. I don't know. I mean, obviously, this movie has a certain tone that wants to protect and sustain. I mean, I was kind of happy that we didn't go into, like, his divorce at all sure. it's just yeah. like it's a fact of his life but we didn't have to see any sort of like obviously he has trauma in his past life we see a scene with his like a couple scenes with his father who doesn't seem like that nice of a guy but just like bypassing that to like actually have a conversation about fear-based decisions and then whether or not that has anything to do with money i think is an interesting section of the film mm. where he's like oh this obviously has everything to do about money. i thought that like, was no, pretty interesting focused. for being an early 90s this being an early 90s movie and just coming off of like 80s and wealth and, and yuppies and like yeah. the, the questions they're asking uh, this movie is ontological it's like it's reminding me of of, of sartre uh, you know and uh and and it never loses its tempo like it doesn't have that high, that chase that tram chase in the middle of the movie it's right at the end where where it probably belongs it's a lot of, mm. of just sitting and talking and that money scene where he's like pushing back against the idea that things were just for money um i thought that was pretty fascinating i'm trying to i tried to put my headspace uh, put myself in a, like a 90s headspace when i watch a movie like this that feels really grounded and born from probably whatever albert brooks was like trying to work through it sounds like he worked on the script for several years um and yeah i don't know if it's playing exactly the way it was in 1991 but it still kind of works because it's level-headed and it's pleasant it's never it's never like raising its voice it's never over dramatizing it's really just talking and i think it's really tight like it's, there's not a lot of meandering talking there's some i think with uh uh julie and all that uh just because that's the the nature of like a meat cute you got to have like those moments about you know corn dogs and whatnot but uh, when it is like i think the reason it doesn't get boring even though it's a whole bunch of talking about whether or not fear-based decisions i guess is just because it is tightly written because albert brooks is either that good or spent that amount of time on it to just sort of like keep it snappy like but even before he dies Almost every line Albert Brooks said, like they enter and he's at like an office party and he's giving a speech to the office party and then he gets in a car and then he gets a new car with the CD player and then he dies. In each one of those scenes, Albert Brooks is just consistently doing one-liners back at whoever's talking to him and they're all really good. Yeah. Do we wish... It's a tight movie. Am I the only one who just wishes Meryl Streep's character had more going on? Yes, because she has so little going on, I thought she was evil. Yeah, well, so you're yeah. waiting for the I mean, twist, right? Like that in the when they you want him to like go into her room where he sees her life and you see like something else to her. I mean, she I like her a lot. I love the like ease with which she occupies this movie and like how she's just like laughs at his jokes and that's kind of like what she needs to be. But it's weird they're just like no, no, no. She doesn't need. A, but she's also. I mean, it's a tough. Given the movie's premise, it's a tough needle to thread because she is sort of like a self-actualized shoe in for the next phase of existence. Yeah, and I think for her to have some sort of demon in her closet or something that really gnawing at her would by definition um 
exclude her. Yeah, exclude her from from being this aspirational figure she needs to be for him to go on with her. Um, It's kind of a thankless role because she does need to be the sort of like pre-Manic Pixie dream girl, you know, Manic Pixie angel in waiting. Um, But that's the function that this particular very Albert Brooksian sort of unrepeatable story needs her to be. Um, and it, because, you know, I think there, there is room for more depth in, in all of this. I mean, I think he is telling, this is a 90 minute movie or thereabouts that is really just getting into its premise, going through the various days of his life. There's all these running gags about the number of days they submit as pertinent evidence in this trial. Um, and they, they revisit, you know, stuff from his childhood and they keep hammering on the fear element of it. Um, but, you know, it has to stay kind of on the surface to maintain the satirical but also sanguine tone that it's going for. You know, it, you can't really – just like my complaint earlier about, you know, wanting it to be um, a, a little bit darker. I mean, you really can't veer too far off course one way or the other with the whole thing falling apart. So I understand why much. The Good Place had to have a twist at the end of season one now because oh, this good, movie existed. The Good Place, you know, I don't, it, I feel silly for, I mean, I guess just because of the conversation we've been having recently, for going to Seoul instead of The Good Place, which is obviously, I mean, this is like inspiration number one for The Good Place. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, 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 and I think that's also what I, what I liked about it. Like, I like that premise. I like the idea that your growth isn't over after you die. So when, like, the movie comes to that, it's. Uh, I think it's a very interesting place to be. It's an interesting movie, and it's that's so untaxing to just put on and enjoy. Yeah, uh, the like the lack of comedies that exist in this, like that we grew up with, like the movie that is just like here are two attractive people in a. This is pretty high concept. Like there were less high concept comedies that existed back then, but like that whole model, you just like, kind of want to like. Have you heard the good news that Hollywood used to make movies like this? <laughs> yeah, I, I was bracing for Brooks to be a little more like his broadcast news character in this rewatch, like because I had no memories of this movie and. Um, <laughs> And and he's not. He's just like he has all these one liners in the beginning, and he's definitely like, you know, what what, what business is he, is he in advertising or? Yeah, okay. you just. I, think, I feel like he's a schmuck. I he should be a schmuck. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, as you do, David. Uh, I ripped you <laughs> twice for that same thing. That's that's mm-hmm. that's. Uh, I'm gonna put, take a note here. I get a point. Um, but <laughs> he's real. He's a nice guy, even in the beginning when he's a. Yeah. You expect him to be a schmucky schmuck, but he's not. And. Um, yeah, my big takeaway from this movie was I really miss going to hotels. I want to go. Oh one. yeah, sure. I want to go to one uh-huh. now. I want to lay yeah. in a hotel bed that's way too. I would just want the room to be way too cold because I turn the AC all the way down. I'm in complete control. Send your patches to that black widow junket. Get me there. <laughs> oh shit. Oh shit. Uh, well, that is that is the real question on all of our listeners' minds. When will junkets be in person again? Will junkets <laughs> ever be in person again? Uh, I think is the real question. Yeah, I mean, that's why my brain kind of short circuits when when you're starting at the top of the segment talking about Albert Brooks's best film because you know no disrespect to his sardonic and unique voice as a director and a number of really fun movies that he made behind the camera. But when I hear Albert Brooks and Best, it's just like my mind is so flooded with lines from broadcast news sure. that oh, yeah. everything else kind of gets drowned out. Although I was thinking about him in broadcast news and the fact that you know I have seen that a bunch of times, but I saw that when I was like twenty. 
four or something for the first time and I'm seeing this for the first time. But like if I had known about Albert Brooks when I was in college, like so many of the guys I knew in college have been like, you didn't make that up. This you're that's not your personality. You just saw an Albert Brooks movie and you decide that's who you wanted to be. He feels so very influential on our generation Whoa. of uh, like funny people and I didn't really piece it together until this movie. I don't know. And yet, Do you does feel not attacked? appear just... in our generation's movie, Funny People. <laughs> he just in This Is Forty. He had to show up for. Uh... Oh, that's right, Jesus. Uh... Making me wonder. <laughs> you're making me wonder what the first Albert Brooks thing that I had seen was, but it was probably The Simpsons when he played. Um, who was the boss? Who was like a Bond villain? Do you know what? Ha- yeah, Scorpio. I know what Scorpio. Yes, Hank Scorpio. Hank Scorpio. Um, and then I watched this movie, so I would not have based myself on him. In summation, the one thing that always brings Fighting in the Worm together is, of course, that Breaking News is one of the greatest films ever made. Breaking oh, News? Oh, I thought you were breaking about to news. say something big. Uh, but... Broadcast News. Okay. Breaking Whoa. Johnny Toes. Johnny Toes Breaking News is fine. <laughs> <laughs> James L. Brooks's Broadcast News is a masterpiece. Yes. Also, uh, but if, Max, you were, if you're choosing someone to spend some time in heaven with, choose the Albert Brooks in this movie rather than the one in Broadcast News. Yeah. True. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> He'll sting you with his dreams of power and wealth. Beware of Scorpio. His twisted twin obsessions are his blood to rule the world and his employees' help. He welcome you into his lair like the nobleman welcomes his guest with greed and care and a stock plan that helps you. Hey, David, I sort of went to South by Southwest and that I had a VR headset and I went and walked down Congress Avenue and went into the Paramount Theater and went into a music venue where there were like picnic tables and like heater lamps and stuff. Uh, and it was weird and fun. I didn't see any movies, though. Did you see some movies? I did. I'm so I'm so excited in this Katie Rich, who is uh, on the vanguard of VR recently. <laughs> you know who I ran into, like literally like. Like VR bumped into is Lawn your colleague Eric Cohn. Yeah. Uh, now Eric Cohn, big VR guy, was like very like happy to show me around and like took me with him to a party. It was like being at a real <laughs> film festival. No, Katie, and, and I am going to sound like an hundred year old man asking this question. You know, someone who knows next to nothing about VR. Can you ask when it in the oldest voice possible? When, when you're, you're walking <laughs> around <laughs> down, I just immediately go to Jimmy Stewart. And eventually, just toggle, <laughs> uh, curls in that direction. Uh, but when you're walking around downtown Austin, your VR set, are you actually? having to walk around your house or is there like a control no there's like a you have like two things in your hand and there's like joysticks on it um i think there's probably other ways to walk around i got pretty seasick pretty easily so i had to like adjust ways to like actually use it in a way that made me feel fine and they had these like like drones you could grab a hold of that would like fly you over the whole space i got really sick really fast doing that and then i fell into a black void and i couldn't figure out (laughs) this sounds like actual south by southwest this reminds me of what happens to me Where's Katie? She's in the void. Well, like eventually I wound up like at like a DJ set inside the Paramount and I was like trying to have a conversation with someone on my headset over the sound of the DJ and I was like, this is like being at a party. I haven't done this in a year. It felt Wait, how are you you, how are you able to talk to people? You're just like on your, so the Oculus headset, has like, a mic. I'm using gestures. It, yeah, like you just wear it on your headset. You don't feel the mic or the ears or anything, but you can hear everything really well and they can hear you just fine. It's kind of wild. I uh, if you if any of you guys want to come over, you can play with my headset. Get back to uh, Yeah. <laughs> uh, I was going to say that in my very limited experience with VR, I think I did like back in the old IndieWire office, I did a Chris Milk thing that had something about like a giant baby in a lake and there was a train in space. I can't remember, but it's what I was, what I was most taken with was how fast 
you become completely dislocated from where you are in the yes. physical world. Yeah. Uh, it's wild. I mean, I was using it for seconds before I just completely lost all concept of space. Yeah, um, it's very it's very strange. Um, and now uh, my husband, Michael, has been playing putt-putt on our headset with his other friend who has a headset, and they play mini golf every night. Um, they're having a great time. So boy, that's my, uh, that's my The long-awaited sequel headsets. to Mario Golf is coming out for the Switch this summer, and I, for one, can't wait. No VR set required. Anyway, I don't think, it's a, I don't think it's a sequel. Yeah. Whatever. Uh, my friends and the I are still, still playing the one on the, I guess, the not the Wii, before the Wii. It's, I think it's the N6, not the N64. What was the between the N64 and the Wii? The GameCube? The, the GameCube. That's where the money Mario Golf is. Thank you. Um, anyway, South by Southwest. Uh, yes, I saw some movies. I did not go as hard as I did for Sundance, but this was a very similar virtual festival. Um accessible to the public in a way that we can all appreciate, but deeply punishing to the film critic in a way that almost all of us can appreciate <laughs> except for me. Um, and uh, yeah, there were, you know, there were, they were good movies, but I think the most interesting development were that uh, a number of the movies that I saw and I don't want to say like majority of the movies in the program, not anywhere close, but a fair amount of the movies in the program were about COVID or made under COVID protocols. Um, and reflected the last year of our lives a little bit more than Sundance movies did just by virtue of, of time and maybe looking for some smaller and scrappier films as is South by Southwest won't do. Um, and to my great surprise, a couple of them were, were good, but most surprising was that one of them was actually very funny. Uh, I, I don't encourage anyone to try this at home. Not that there's anywhere else you could really try it these days. But uh, the idea of a South by like a COVID comedy, uh, like an unabashed, like Preston Sturges speed screwball comedy made by a uh, a uh, Mormon sketch group or the graduates of a Mormon sketch group from BYU, uh, you know, in addition to everything else, sounded like it could have been dicey. And the first couple of minutes of recovery were, but as soon as it finds its legs after blitzing through all of like the most obvious COVID signifiers, it is just hilarious. I mean, like I combine a really, I and mean, this is the filmmaker's description where they say that it's more of a combination of book smart and lock. Uh, it's about two sisters <laughs> who are sort of in an emergency road trip halfway across the country to rescue their grandmother from a Thunderdome like nursing home where the infection is beginning to kill everyone uh, and things are going out of control. And as morbid and potentially glib as that sounds when I say it, or if you were to read it on paper, the movie is as silly and it is extremely silly as it is. It is grounded seriously enough in the stakes of what was happening and what is continuing to happen in a lot of respects. Um, that it never feels fl too flippant. Um, it really walks a fine and confident and consistently funny line uh, between what is too far and what is just the, the act of finding joy and levity in the middle of this crisis. And it's absurd. It's a movie that Matt Patches would be cackling hysterically through. Mm. Um, it's, uh, and that was a real, that was a real standout for me. And it felt to me like the only COVID comedy that we need. And I'd be happy to eat, that the, eat those words if somebody else made a good one. But for now, I feel like we got one that's probably more than enough. And I would uh, highly discourage anybody else from trying. Did that um, one get picked up? Not yet. But uh, it's, it, I'm sure that it will. Um, I don't know if it's big enough to pop with like 
you know, a distributor is going to put into theaters or anything like that. But mm-hmm. at, at the very least, I think that they should get picked up by a streamer and rushed into uh, VOD or streaming as soon as possible, because I do think that these COVID movies probably have a pretty short shelf life. I think once the world is transitioning a little bit more away from where we are now, the appetite for that kind of content is going to be greatly reduced. But to watch this from my home, you know, still not being vaccinated, still in the thick of the COVID of it all, uh, to, to see this and see people making the genuine humor out of it um, was was kind of a bomb. Uh, and so I really like that. And there were other COVID movies. There was a documentary about Charlie XCX and the quarantine album that she cut in five weeks, almost as soon as uh, quarantine started last March. Um, and that is that is fun. It's called Alone Together. That has also not been picked up, but it's only 67 minutes long. And I can't imagine it's going to go with any major, but you may, you'll find it streaming somewhere or other uh, before too long. There was a movie called... Um, what was it called? It's not appearing on my letterbox right now because it doesn't have a poster. And that's the only metric, the only way I have of keeping track of what I've seen. It was called The End of Us, uh, which is the most obvious COVID movie that people could make, um, which isn't necessarily a knock against it. But it's about two exes who break up the night before lockdown is imposed on Los Angeles and are suddenly find that they are stuck together for God knows how long in their newly broken upstate and uh, it's a rom-com about you know exactly what you think would, would happen um as they try to figure out what they're going to be going forward even when they have nowhere else to go so that uh, sounds like, sounds like what i do not want to see yeah i think that that instinct is fine um <laughs> i i the movie is winning enough the, it's, it's cute there's some funny bits it has a nice energy to it um but yeah, I mean, it is it is the go-to. You have five minutes to brainstorm a movie about COVID that you can shoot um, yeah. for a budget over the course of the next few weeks. What what's it going to be? This is what it this is what it is, um, and it's just fine. Could be worse. Uh, I think as long as we kind of contain these films in this bizarre pocket of time we're in right now, they are inevitable. They're maybe even a helpful way of processing. This moment, uh, if I see the end of us three years from now, I am going to throw it in the trash bin in my computer along with it. When do you uh, think? When do you think they're going to come back? Like, when will the like period COVID pieces? How long will we need? I don't know. I think I think in kind of the same way that like Lady Bird was about the Iraq, the beginning of the Iraq War. Um, there will always be films, uh, whether they are coming of age, nostalgia you know, type films that are set that are made rather 15 years from now, or any kind of movie that has a sort of point to being anchored in this point of time because it was a formative moment in somebody's life because there was some thematic resonance to what's happening. I mean, I think there's going to be the bar for the reason to shoot or set a movie now is going to be raised considerably. Um, and I don't think movies are going to be set in this period of time by accident mm-hmm. um, or thoughtlessly uh, once we have kind of moved on. Um, but, you know, I think it's maybe I'll be wrong about this, but I kind of think it's going to be more like a blip than it is anything else. It's going to be just like something that the movies kind of ignore. Um, I've seen a lot of movies shot oh, during COVID so already nice. that have like Celine Sciamma's new movie, which is wonderful. Uh, has it was shot during COVID, and if somebody told you it was shot during COVID, you would be like, "Oh yeah, that makes sense," because it's a small movie that has like four actors in it and is set in the woods somewhere. But it makes absolutely no mention of the pandemic. Um, a movie like Ben Wheatley's Into the Earth that was at Sundance 
makes like you're aware there's a pandemic happening, even though it's a little bit more advanced than ours right now at the very, very beginning of the movie, but then it fades into the background. Um, there's a segment of the Ryusuke Hamaguchi uh, film, Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy, that was shot during COVID. I had no idea. Um, I mean, like, I think that you're going to get a lot of that. Uh, but I think that movies are only going to refer back to this when um, when they need to. And the greater legacy is going to be when you're streaming season four of Chicago Fire or something 10 years from now. And you're like, wait, why are all the characters yeah, wearing what's masks? Going on? Uh, and you're like, yeah. oh, right, right, right. And then you move on. All right, all right. Because you'll all be screaming. You'll be streaming season four of Chicago Fire ten years from now. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, so that was that was the big takeaway from South by for me. Katie, did you see any movies? No, I. Come on, Katie, see a movie. I had to watch the Snyder Cut and all of Search Party. (laughs) Well, I missed out. Know how long it took to watch the Snyder Cut? (laughs) It took it it took me three days, but we'll get there. I, I didn't see the film that won the narrative competition, The Fallout. I didn't see the Selma Blair documentary that people really responded to. Um, this is the last thing I'll give a quick shout out to uh, is a movie that I think could appeal to a lot of our listeners. I'm If it hasn't been picked up by Shudder already or if it wasn't you know, paid for by Shudder, uh, it soon will be acquired by them. Uh, it's called Woodlands, Dark, and Days Bewitched, A History of Folk Horror. It is a three-hour and 13-minute, almost Snyder Cut length history of folk horror beginning in the 60s with the wicker man was the early 70s but beginning with the unholy trinity of Witchfinder general blood on satan's claw and the wicker man um, and then stretching all the way forward into films like the witch the lighthouse uh, midsommar and things like that and then taking a more global view as well la Llorona and um and other films of its kind it's really a comprehensive uh Kind of dry, but always compelling overview of folk horror that, like, if you watched while you had a letterbox list open on another window, just keeping keeping notes of all the movies that you wanted to see, would be mm. a very good use of your time. It's a fun thing to look out for. Um, it contextualizes an entire mode of filmmaking uh, in a really thorough way. And that was South by Southwest. Hopefully next year it'll be one of many festivals that is happening IRL. Get ready for four hours of Mm. conversation in depth. We're going into the Snyder Cut, the Justice League re-edit by Zachary Snyder, uh, based on a film, (laughs) Justice League, from 2017. It's back, though. It has much more footage. And we're going to be talking spoilers. There's really no... What are... There are no spoilers to this because Zack Snyder has been spoiling... The contents of this four-hour cut for the last five years. Everything you could possibly want to know about it was out there, and if you hadn't seen it, you don't really give a shit. If you hadn't heard about it, you don't care. Uh, but maybe you watch the whole thing and need to make sense of it, because it is barely a movie. I mean, it might be called the Snyder Cut, but I'm not... Maybe something we should discuss here is, is whether or not this is um, something to be called a movie or not. Uh, but I want to get to the, the really, really important thing first. What do we think of that latte art in the movie? There was time mm. 
for a lot of different things. This movie, like but a, they make I mean, they make sure to make a good latte. You know, I missed the latte art, but I did pay special attention to the slow motion shot of Lois Lane putting down her coffee cup on the railing near the Superman memorial. Yeah, well, I mean, how could you tell it apart from all the other um, slow motion shots? There's just so many of them. Most of the movie is in slow motion. Yeah, this is about a 90 minute movie extended through the magic of slow motion. It's quite a Scotsy. Uh, I think it's slightly over a two-hour movie because here's the thing. I've seen the cut-down version of this movie, and I don't think it's any worse. Wait, wait. Oh, as in like the, the Justice League that was released in theaters? So Justice really? League directed by Zack Snyder, which is 2017's movie, versus Zack Snyder's Justice League, which is 2021's movie. He says he's never seen the theatrical cut, uh, which uh, makes sense because this is the exact same thing. Uh, there's a real funny thing that's luckily it's been out long enough and fandom is rapid enough uh, that you could go on YouTube and do side by side comparisons. I like uh, one that's just called the Superman vs. the Flash, uh, Zack Snyder's Justice League, side by side Justice League, because it shows that like they're literally like lifting 30 seconds out of shots. Uh, like, they're just like, all right, Superman's punching here, so let's just cut three punches out and just make him cut into the, like, the last punch. They're like lifting 30 seconds out of this movie. Uh, like, I think a lot of the Joss Whedon rewrites maybe weren't great, and I do definitely side eyed the fact that, um, uh, even black extras were cut out of this movie. But in terms of uh, if I were a studio executive and someone showed me an assembly cut that looked like this four-hour movie and Zack Snyder and uh, Joss Whedon was able to cut it down in the two-hour Justice League movie we got, I think that kind of works. The only thing that's like better about this longer version, I think, uh, demonstrably, is the design of Steppenwolf. Everything <laughs> else, like there are moments that I like, like all Zack Snyder movies, there are fantastic action moments. But the Chris Terrio script is worse than a Joss Whedon repaired Chris, Ter- Chris Terrio. Oh well, yeah, what's interesting is it's, I, and I asked Deborah Snyder this uh, in an interview for Polygon, which was like, how long was this movie supposed to be? Like, how do you make, yeah, I've how do you make this. this script that resulted in the four-hour version into a movie that could have played in theaters ever? It seems like they set themselves up for disaster um, to try and like maybe they made a two and a half hour version of this and there certainly is fat in this movie that could be cut and you would lose nothing but between introducing the flash and introducing cyborg and introducing steppenwolf who has like a uh, beef with dark side his nephew by the way dark side is what? steppenwolf's nephew mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. this is not oh. a, I didn't get we, we've that. also we've left out Desaad entirely because Desaad he, he gets to show up at them my, my favorite thing about Desaad uh, who I obviously had never heard of at you Google stand after him, watching uh, is of course I stand him but I stand him because uh, his name is derived from the Marquis Desaad because apparently Desaad of all Dark Side's minions is especially cruel and, and how can you not love a guy like that um, yeah there's, there's I just don't know how what they were thinking. I don't know how this would have been a functional movie at all. And I feel like, look, the Whedon stuff is really tricky and it's loaded. But I saw a lot of people after the Snyder Cut came out on HBO Max be like, the Whedon Cut, you know, sucked. This is all his fault. And I'm just like, I don't know how you get handed this movie to make it into a more functional two-hour release. Maybe that was silly, but like none of this started from a good place. None of this started streamlined no. and, in, and in a place to be like a functional theatrical so, uh, film. The, yeah. The hearsay narrative, which has become mm-hmm. the hearsay narrative mostly through 
post HBO Max greenlighting the Snyder cut and the the Snyders kind of being able to tell their side of the story. Sure. But living through it back in the 2016s, Batman v Superman comes out. Everyone hates it. They hate it so much that the studio is like, we're going to rein in Zack Snyder, who's already shooting Justice League, which he has prepped as Justice League. I remember a lot of our colleagues went to the set of Justice League, like right after Batman v Superman came out, and all the They flew them there for the explicit purpose of showing them that the film was going to be funnier and lighter than Mm -hmm. Batman v Superman. And it was like a week or two after the movie came out. Wow. Yeah. So Warner Brothers is like, okay, people obviously don't like this. And then they look at what Zack Snyder actually pitched, which is a three-part Justice League movie, of which he got two parts greenlit before Batman v Superland nosedived. Superland. Uh, Superland mm-hmm. uh, nosedived. And then um, uh, they look at the movie and they realize that what Zack Snyder has done is he started production on a film that you can't disassemble once it's in production. So essentially he just like full steam ahead, which I imagine if you're going to make a four hour movie that's like at this level and that was always your intention, like, yeah, why not screw the suits by just prepping your four hour movie and starting to shoot your four hour movie despite what everybody wants. But then he was let go because maybe not let go like technically fired, but they flew in producers to basically take the set away from him. Trank like, if you will, uh, before, even before he had to leave, uh, because of, uh, his daughter's suicide, which is a legitimate reason to leave a project. I'm not saying that that was like any sort of like cover story. What I am saying is there's a period of time where Zack Snyder's director in name only, and the studio is trying to figure out like what to do. And what it is, is, they saw this like presumably this is what he wanted to do and they were just like what like absolutely not like what are you doing like you, we try we trusted you with batman v superman we were obviously wrong and this is an entire movie about people being sad that superman's back and then superman comes back but you don't even bring him back he's still he's sad throughout the rest of your your trilogy like what's what's going on with this he so he's being sad he just has Does a black he? uniform, right? Is he mm. so sad at the end? He he's more, buys. He's a, more emo than sad. His mom gets his house, gets her house back. Oh yeah, and he's impregnated Lois, so that's fun. Yeah, I mean, I did. So I watched the. I had never seen Justice League twenty seventeen, and I rewatched the like final action sequence just af- right after I finished Justice League, just out of curiosity. And it was it made me laugh out loud that like Superman's suit in the first one was red and blue still, and it's black in this one, like. <laughs> Exact Snyder's come back and Superman has a black suit on and that's so awesome. He really, really yep. wanted that black suit. That was a big thing for him. I mean, and I I expected the movie to be a lot of things like that, being like, look at how badass and dark this is. And like most of the parts of the movie that were like that I really wasn't into. But it was like more like tender in weird ways. Like there's like a mournfulness to it that like worked, I thought, in like the how it opens with like the shockwaves of Superman dying screams like going oh. around the earth. It sounds just as insane as it, it is insane, but it was kind of sad. <laughs> I, I, was like, about I kind to, of got it when I saw that. I was about it. to back you up. And I think in the abstract, I am going to echo what you were just saying um, about the, the feeling of this impending darkness and, and this, this sense that 
there's a battle coming that's bigger than anyone is ready to wrap their heads around uh, that you get. It starts with those shockwaves coming out and, the, 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 you know, there's something coming and it does the build nicely. Those very opening shots of Superman, like, you know, cut from black to Superman screaming into the void or whatever the fuck like that was not my favorite I'm not saying it's good I'm saying <laughs> it's a philosophy I'm saying it's like, got a purpose it almost feels and I'm sure it wasn't designed this way like a way for people who react to Zack Snyder unfavorably and sort of roll their eyes at his grandiosity to sort of get those laughs out of their system right away as you uh-huh. go zero to peak Snyder um, yeah. and then resettle a bit but I actually like the first hour or so of this movie the first episode if we can call it that uh, was of this TV show <laughs> um, was the first time that I was like, I kind of feel like I see what he's going for. Like I kind of, what was he, what do you think he's going for? The sense of the, the apocalyptic build where all these different corners of the galaxy or the, the galaxy of the globe are, um, you know, going to need to unify because they're all under threat and they all have their own different, hurdles to get over before they can get their shit straight and participate and fight for the common good. Like Independence Day or something. This is a roll of number kind of superheroes. Or yeah. uh, um, like uh, the, the beginning of Avengers Endgame, like maybe? Sure, but it's like the solemnity concept? of it. Yes, but like the solemnity of it all sells the stakes of what's coming in a way that the Whedon cut never even remotely does. I mean, you go straight, straight to that poor family in their little log cabin in the fringes of Chernobyl. And... Well, no, you have, you have an entire added Batman scene about how the parademons could smell fear, which is equally as bad. Like, I'm not saying that <laughs> Zach's, I'm not saying that Joss Whedon, like, solved all of the problems, but I do think that parademons that could smell fear is dumb. So are parademons that are the flying monkeys to spike I, I was going to say, I would take that a step farther and say that parademons in any context mm. are dumb those mm. things look dumb as shit and anyone who thought they look cool if you're a parademon um, leave a review next week we'll read it in full <laughs> they're just like they're little fucking fly wings i mean i get it they're supposed to be pests but uh they, parademons? they're just evil they fly around they, they just like i they look so silly every time they cut to it i couldn't take it to and it's i say that apocalypse. Like they, they didn't choose this they stand out as especially silly even in a movie where where, you know, shimmery, sharp-suited Darkseid is, uh, is not Darkseid. Steppenwolf. Steppenwolf. And his name is Steppenwolf. Is yeah, his name is the bad guy. Um, the fact that Michael Shannon has been in this franchise and that they had someone else play Steppenwolf is just really cruel. <laughs> well, they, they blew their shot at Shannon. You know, they wasted him on the wrong I villain. Know. Well, technically, Doomsday is the corpse of Michael Shannon, so uh, oh boy. He, he's in all three Zack Snyder uh, Wait, which one's Doomsday? The guy who uh, stabbed Superman at the very beginning of this movie, making him oh, cry out. Oh. That was you the know, first it's... thing in my notes, was who is that stabbing Superman, because I didn't remember. You know, it's a question I am not going to ask, uh, at least not in any form other than rhetorically, is... What the fuck was up with the? I guess it was the Martian Manhunter impersonating uh, Clark Kent's mom. Uh-huh. <laughs> I don't even want to know. I don't want to know. I don't want our listeners to know. <laughs> so we can all our our heads are better without that information filling it. But uh, that was a choice that threw me off. I think there were some question marks in my notes. But I mean, the the butter definitely slid off the knife for me a bit in the middle. I think once you get back into the the territory that we covered in. Whedon's cut and you have the fight to reanimate Superman and really for me and I know that a lot of people have harped on Cyborg who was obviously 
sort of, uh, you know, really watered down for the Wheaton cut being a strong point here. As soon as Cyborg shows up in this movie, I checked out. I mean, I found his whole story, his really, you know, put upon daddy issues in a movie that is teeming with them to be so, so inauthentic and boring. fake. And so boring. So I don't, and he's I not a character. Yeah. I don't get I a lot of the praise less about him. and the performance is so one note. I mean, I can imagine Zack Snyder wanting to be like really deep about this and be like, just play it flat. Like you are a cyborg now. Um, and it just, it, it really goes nowhere. And then it gets uh, into the absurd yeah. when he starts like, I don't know, seeing all of American Separating economy. the bear and lion of Wall yeah, Street. Oh my god, I, yeah. I wrote down the bear and the lion. You can see, you can see <laughs> from no, the bear and the bull. The bear, bear and the bull, yeah. sorry, yeah. sorry. You, you can see from this footage what Ray Fisher was fighting for, what he was upset about. I mean, obviously they shot volumes of content with him that would have fleshed out his character in, you know, in addition to whatever um, abuse. I mean, he was a big star in the movie. And p- yeah. As opposed yeah, to the, new ver- the uh, 2017 version where he was not. I, I don't think that there you know, is an actor alive who really could have redeemed the way this character was written. I just no. don't think there's the space there that Zack Snyder gives him the wiggle room that he needed. Um, it is an incredibly boring performance that is more machine than man. It's all about, you know, now we get more context as how we can control the world's nuclear arsenal and tap into the mother boxes. Whatever. I guess we did. We but, got him saying he could do those things. Yeah, but I... I couldn't care less. I know I'm supposed to be moved by his. I wish this movie could have had a perspective. Like I wish it could have been Cyborg's movie. Like we introduced Batman and Superman and Wonder Woman in the Batman v Superman movie. Now give us Cyborg's journey through Justice League, and then he'll like group well, together what you're with all these other heroes. For is I just want a Cyborg movie that stands on its own, which goes back. But not to if it's about your... Cyborg trying to connect with the Justice League and bring them together. And he is the mother box, right? He has the connection. So he could have been the main character of this movie. This movie has no main characters. But and it goes no back main to your plots. original point, which yeah. is that the original sin of this movie, even before Zack Snyder had to leave, was greenlighting it, you know, without having origin films about some of these other characters. I mean, not, they don't have to follow the Marvel mode and the Marvel template to a T. Um, but, Something that Marvel did do right, something that Joss Whedon of all people did right with Marvel, was assembling all these different characters who you've already endeared to people and established who they are and given them wants and arcs and whatnot, and then meaningfully knotting them together. And it was absolutely demented to think that you could introduce what the Flash, Aquaman, Cyborg, um, reintroduce Superman, who's a character I totally forgot existed until the three hour How mark of this movie. How do you forget Superman exists? <laughs> yeah, Superman, What's wrong with you? Um, I would argue that the Flash is pretty well done in the Snyder no, Cut. No, like, really? I, mean, I think hang, the Flash on, is on. worse than Cyborg. Okay, I think that as a character, like, I feel like I get him as a character. I feel like there's not a sense of being like, why do people care about this guy? And that whole slow-mo Kiersey Clemens sequence is astonishing to me that they cut that out of the theatrical version. It's like, that sequence is good. Yeah, I mean, because how does a movie hold together if you don't have a slow motion shot of a sesame seed plummeting to the ground? I mean, um, there are a lot. That shot was 90% done when the movie was released and popped up on Reddit right, it was, like, two months yeah, afterwards. Yeah, it was on Reddit. I remember because, watching it like because, years, like because you're, you're right. It's of the things to cut. You only cut it because you don't want to have a four-hour movie. Yeah. And, like, it doesn't add anything to Barry Allen. It just It's more Ezra Miller doing his cool. thing, which is fine, but it's not, like... Zack Snyder has not successfully introduced a superhero ever in his career. So I don't understand why they suddenly were like, well, keep doing more. Yeah. Did you like Man of Steel? Yes, I like Man of Steel. That's the only superhero I need. 
Wow. Man, Man of Steel is not a good movie. Uh, Man Man of a good movie. movie. The only I'm... thing, what I remember about Man of Steel is that the score is really good and that no. Kevin Costner Do you remember died in a every curly Man of Steel chest is the hair I... on Henry Cavill's Man of Steel, Man of Steel is the is idea iron, of Homelander iron. from the boys without any testicles. Wow. That's what Man of Steel is. Holy shit. Because uh... well, that's, that's what they build to they hear is they're all like... Superman comes back and he's different. And it, what it is is it's building this like major threat. It's like our biggest thing that we didn't realize is that Superman was on our side. And like all that fucking thing his ghost dad said to him, that was true. He was going to help us be better. And now we like rejected him and he's going to come back and he's going to be against us. And then Darkseid's going to get the anti-life equation. He's going to turn it against us. And all because we like let him fall in love with this woman. Like who the what character is that? It Superman. does kind of feel like from the Snyder side. Yes, it's Zack Snyder. It's, it's Zack Snyder's Superman. It's a ballless Homelander. At wow. least Homelander it does kind knows of feel what he wants. like the Snyder Cut is the kind of movie that they would make the heroes, the Vought heroes, make in yes. the Boys. I mean, well, Boys season two skewers Snyder so hard, right. and it's so funny. Um, but let me, I I think Man of Steel is a good movie. Let me continue right. to defend. Zachary, for another yes. second here. There are a lot of good sequences in the movie. I think there are bits of it that are watchable. And maybe I told David this or your colleague Jordan Oppen. But my take for this after seeing it is like, Zach Snyder needs to go harder into the non-narrative. He needs to go harder. Or not non-narrative, just like non, the unconventional. I've been thinking a lot about Roy Anderson and his upcoming film oh, About Endlessness. <laughs> And Roy Anderson obviously comes from about the commercial world. Would be a comes, great subtitle for the Snyder Cut. Yeah, about endlessness. Uh, you know, Roy Anderson comes from the commercial world, shoots shoots a lot of commercials, and then goes and makes movies that are total vignettes, just strung together. Uh, there's some mm-hmm. connections, there's but not really um, thematic. But you know, each one stands on its own. Zack Snyder needs to do this. He's a commercial guy. This whole movie feels like different Nike spots from the early 2000s, and when it completely is divorced from whatever i'm supposed to care about and whatever plot it's it's driving toward it's fun it's fun to see the amazons fighting steppenwolf it looks pretty good especially when it doesn't have to be like completely painted over in red for whatever was going on in the 2017 theatrical version disaster um here i can actually tell what's going on and then like when they're when the flash is doing his thing whether it's breaking the space-time barrier so he can time travel or just running and saving what's-her-name from the crashed truck. Like, that stuff looks cool, and that's enjoyable. Yeah, I mean, I think there are... You know, that sequence with Steppenwolf and the uh, Amazons is a lot more effective than I remember. I don't even remember if there was a similar sequence that we didn't cut. There must have been. Um, As much as I rolled my eyes at the massive flashback about the original war between all these people, and that points to another failing of this movie. Maybe That was also in the theatrical cut. It was. Yeah, I I couldn't believe that was also in the theatrical cut. I think the biggest failing of this movie, uh, you know, and sort of compounded by the whole thing of not having the origin stories for these characters, is that it's supposed to be about these various factions, these characters are representatives of them getting over their differences and coming together to fight a a common threat. Uh, And I had no sense of what it was that was keeping them apart, what they had, what conflicts they had to resolve between various peoples. Um, There was, there was no, like there's more tension in bringing the Avengers who are, you know, happy go lucky cartoons compared to these characters, at least in Zack Snyder's mind, bringing them together. than there is, in, in bringing any of these people together. I mean, they have no beef to squash. 
Uh, other than Batman v Superman, they already had a whole movie together, and that was a long time ago. <laughs> I had already checked out of that relationship. But um, I did think that one action sequence is better here, and then ironically, the big, most Whedon-like, or at least most Avengers Battle of New York-like sequence that you get at the end of the Snyder Cut, uh, with all the characters coming together to fight the parademons and Steppenwolf and everything, is just a big old soupy dark mess. Um, that I completely checked out of. Yeah, I guess, guess who's not watching the gray cut? Me, ever. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know what this movie needed was less color, more contrast is what nobody said. <sighs> Katie, I mean, oh, sorry. I'm, I'm, I'll Come just here. express this and see if Katie wants to build on to it. I just, I kind of wish I had gotten a moment uh with like superman or batman over this three film series that wasn't like them flying that or them doing some sort of action thing that spoke to their character Hmm. i feel like this is they're they're elevated to the level of gods to the point that in, in order to do like a simple character motion it has to be huge uh, Barry Allen has to forgive himself for letting his dad get arrested or something by like literally breaking time. Cyborg has to like you know uh, get over his thing with his dad because his dad sacrifices himself because he doesn't know that remote controls can work outside of the box that you're operating them in. Uh, <laughs> like everybody has to do this huge gigantic thing. There is it, it. It all gets boiled down to like Martha, and you're like, what? Where is the characters? Where are any of these characters? They're all gigantic actions that I have real trouble following the motivations for. And even if they're telling me like the entire world's going to get terraformed and whatnot, it, it, there's never a connection there between the threat and the heroes because there isn't a scene that is an exposition where there's actually character dialogue going on. That, yeah. That's yeah the thing. And I felt like Superman. they did. Yeah, I'm sorry. Go Katie. I, I never saw Aquaman, but I felt like Aquaman as a character like existed and Wonder Woman as a character existed. Like they have interactions that feel like people like on a weird team that they don't necessarily know what's going on. Like I, in like, I mean, I guess I like Ezra Miller's performance better than most of you guys, but like the, it felt like there was like an ability to be somebody uh, as opposed to what Dave was saying about Superman and Batman. Superman especially, I think, just suffers so much from being like, hello. I'm Superman. I can shoot lasers out of my eyes, and I got nothing else going for me. And Amy Adams, like, I mean, you remember when the world loved me and I was saving everybody? No, that was in between movies. I don't remember that Superman. <laughs> I think I think Ezra Miller is the real Shanta here. I mean, his like Ursatch Joss Whedon. I mean, it feels like Zack Snyder doing Joss Whedon. Um, I feel like there are so many c- scenes in the Snyder cut that people blamed Whedon for. I mean, I think that some of that was going to be inevitable when we got the full yeah. extent of his vision. But we also see, as there are some compare and contrast videos going around on the internet today, um, scenes that were just immensely more affecting in, or at all affecting in the Snyder Cut that were just wallpaper in the Whedon one, like the scene where Lois Lane visits um, someone. <laughs> Who the fuck? Uh, no, look, Ma Kent? Kent visits Lois Lane. Yeah. And uh, in in the Whedon version, it's a conversation at the Daily Planet. And it's very, you know, anodyne and played for not even laughs, but like just very kind of light and meaningless. And there's some real soul and heft to it in the Snyder Cut. And uh, it's different tonalities, but you can just see. I you think know, Zack Snyder I, I wanted to make to a Superman that. trilogy. And what's yeah. weird about this whole saga is that 
first off, Man of Steel is good, but it did underperform, and then they forced him to make Batman v Superman, and I know the man, and he keeps saying this. He said it on the press trail for, for this movie, for the Snyder Cut, which is, like, he wants to make the Dark Knight Rises, or the Dark Knight Returns movie at some point. So he just took that urge, mashed it into Superman, Neither character makes sense. And then had to do a Justice League movie. But all the man wants to do is make a Superman movie. He's obsessed with, like, Superman as Jesus Christ, as is the only symbol he can come up with. But he will pound away at these are mythological beings. They are gods. But as you said, Dave, like, there are many Superman comics about what it means to be godlike and dealing with humanity and dealing with your almost immortality. And, and these movies have no... Not even a, a, a scrap of that story. There's a, a really in, funny. In, no, don't go on, Dave. Yeah, oh, and trying to smash those puzzle pieces together in a way to try to get his message across, he he hurts the characters. He has things like in Batman v Superman, where Lex Luthor frames Superman by blowing up like a whole court building, and Superman sadly looks around and flies off. Where it's like, no. Fucking Superman would have saved the people in the rubble. That's like a number one Superman thing. I get that you want to say that he's sad, and I really get I really get that he's sad. Like that message is received. I almost feel like if Zack Snyder had somebody who was slightly better than Chris Terrio at interpreting his messages, this would be better. He needs a simple three beat story, a la three hundred, like fucking hold the pass, and then just let him do whatever he fucking wants with it. Like, I saw a very funny yeah. meme uh, tonight that was just the scene from early in the Snyder Cut where uh, the little girl who Wonder Woman saves is asking, can I be like you someday? And the caption under the cut back to Wonder Woman just says, no, I am a god. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think encapsulates a lot of the problem uh, with certainly that scene and maybe the rest of the film. I mean, it's 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 a definitely a curio, and if you're interested in how you know superhero movies were made in that the early 21st century, it'll always be interesting. But I don't think I'm going to be revisiting Zack Snyder's DC trillogy many times. I'll be soon. watching it once a year with my whole family, probably. Well, yeah, to replace your now now that Harry Potter's canceled, you yeah. got to watch something. Uh, wait, Katie, you had a good Wonder Woman take about the Snyder Cut, didn't you? Can I? What did I say? I thought you. I thought you thought that Gal Gadot was good in this movie. Oh, oh right. yeah. Is that a hot? T- I thought your take. Oh, yeah. Well, I don't want to say your take. It's a hot take. I guess I can't remember my hot. Imagine take. you don't remember your hot Gal take. Gadot your hot take is that movie. you think Gal Gadot is better in the Snyder Cut than in Wonder Woman 1984. Oh, that was my hot take. I I, I watched the now. Snyder I'm spouting out Snyder Katie's cut hot over takes. many many days. I like that whole sequence she has at the thing in England. I think whatever that is early on. Oh. Um, she's good in all of those action sequences. There's like, she has like this, like, I'm here, I'm here to save the day, but like, I am still, even when I'm very serious, I'm still a real person who will like smile at you and want to like welcome you into my club. Um, energy to it. She's like warm throughout every single scene that she's in. And I feel like that was the energy in that opening sequence in Wonder Woman 84, the like really silly one. And then the rest of them, she's like making selfish choices and like not being herself. Um, and I just liked that, that energy she had, uh, you know, as opposed to like, Ben Affleck is a block of what a Superman or is yeah. Batman. I think Ben Affleck actually wins the Snyder Cut. He is the most improved performance. 
no. I'm, really? No, no. I, I, and I am a, a staunch <laughs> Ben Affleck defender more often than not. Uh, I was prepared to go to bat, you know, re- go to bat? an Oscar nomination. Go to bat, Fleck, for, for uh, the, way, uh, the Way Back. Um, right I don't want to say The Way Back. Just that, that means like the back of the theater. Just The Way Back. The, the Way Back. <laughs> the Way Back. Dear God. Sure. There's anyway, a um, there's, uh, but I'm trying to think of who is most improved here. Steppenwolf, as Dave said. Yeah, it's got to be Looks Steppenwolf. less like Bob it's Newhart, even boy. though that's what we all wanted. More Bob yes. Newhart in gotta Major Blackbusters. Well, just the idea that you're going to give like a VFX artists like exactly what they quote to make something that obscene is amazing to me. Like he's his like little armor twitches. They made his face all like squat and troll like, which fucks up all of his sounds that would require lips because they don't work right. But like in terms of like his eyes and like the twitching compared to the old design, I I liked watching Steppenwolf just be a sad boy, and then the previous one I did not. Hmm. So, Can I ask some questions about the ending? <laughs> Which ending? Just, just for the oh just God. to sh- bring the listeners behind the curtain, I just typed into the chat that apparently no one read. I gotta go. No, <laughs> but, uh, I didn't mean the second. The second I just meant that we needed to to wrap. But well, uh, I am I am also interested about the ending, especially we have uh, the combined mental power of Dave and Patches. I, w- I will speedily try to um, uh, answer Katie's questions. Let's go. It- I assume that it is funny to other people that maybe not quite the last lines in the movie, but close to it are Martian Manhunter, mm-hmm. as if that's supposed to be a thing. Yeah, I believe he's fuck? like, I'm Martian Manhunter. Now, Bye. Katie, he's I, like, Goodbye. Some people call me the Scarlet Witch. I'm sorry to do this, but the answers <laughs> to this question will unfortunately answer the question that I asked not to be answered earlier. Uh, which is what are the sequels supposed to be no which was about the person who is impersonating Ma Kent I don't remember oh, someone impersonating Ma Kent oh yeah Martian Manhunter Martian Manhunter is impersonating Ma after Kent the, after that scene with uh, Lois Lane he walks out in the hallway and turns into something yeah, yeah. so, that totally so that's as much as an answer as I think foggy. that we are he's a shapeshifter he's a member of the Justice League that is the seventh member of the Justice League Jack's, unite, Jack's the seven. united the seven united the seven I, in what the very last scene of the movie. A better question is this. Well, he is, he is be, one. It was supposed to be Green Lantern, but they wouldn't let Zack Snyder use Green Lantern because they want to use Green Lantern because for Green Lanterns things. is. So can you really say you, re- you united the, the seven? They united a seven. Mm. <laughs> Riddle me this though: Ben Affleck's uh, Lakeside Glass House that Katie yeah. was tweeting about earlier Hell today yeah. Lovely. used to belong to Amy Adams in Rival. Uh, now, Amy Adams, of course, is Lois Lane in this film. What did they ever overlap? This is called the, the multiverse. From one to yeah, another? it's one, of the, it's one of the Batman situation? multiverses. Yeah. When, when Jeremy Renner left her to become Hawkeye, it became uh, Batman's house. Now we are skipping the scene where Joker says he gives Batman reach arounds. Talk about <laughs> Martian Manhunter. So that scene much. sucks. That was. I never saw Suicide Squad either. I'm really revealing my DC blind spots here. This is my first exposure to Jared Leto's Joker. Jesus Christ! There was a whole movie about him. It just feels like yeah. he's, doing he's doing a parody. The, of like, he was. He was in a movie. That's for sure. Yeah. It feels like he's doing the like not not Batman XXX like porn parody of, <laughs> of Joker. <laughs> <laughs> like that was the first having not unfortunately seen that particular parody it feels like imagine, that's just but, future you know, jared leto like batman just ran across future jared leto like that's, that's yes I, this is what jared leto to... has become 
It's, well, also it, that scene is completely incomprehensible to me because it's. A bunch Kate, what of are you people. talking about? Obviously, Darkseid has wielded the anti-life equation and <laughs> taken over the minds of all of Earth, and Superman is working with him because Batman caused the death of Lois Lane. Uh, come on. <laughs> yeah, didn't you I see mean, the two-second shot of Superman holding a dead Lois? And Darkseid off-screen must have killed Aquaman, so Mera is there. To, wait, in a dream sequence that occurred two hours earlier. In yes, the movie, of course. Yes. Three you don't days remember earlier that? for me. It's, uh, it that that's insane. The scene with um, what's his name, Joe Manganiello on a yacht with Lex Luthor is crazy. It's that's also true. crazy that the climax of this movie takes place in a decommissioned nuclear site, and then there's a big scene on a yacht off the coast of Croatia. There are two scenes from Tenet. It's like the two major climaxes <laughs> of Tenet are repeated. Just as, like it's Holy crazy. Shit. <laughs> Who did it first is the question. I guess Say Snyder did. Christopher I mean, Nolan definitely was a producer on this, so he knew. He knew. That's true. <laughs> It's wild. Uh, Uh, I like Jesse Eisenberg. I don't remember liking Jesse Eisenberg as Lex Luthor, but I liked him there. He was good. He just didn't have uh... good scenes in Batman v Superman. He he (laughs) gave like... uh, It's it's the same problem with all the movies. That jar of piss. Do you remember that scene from Batman? I do. Granny's Peachy. Somebody else write these blockbuster movies. Who decided Chris Terrio was good at this? Ben Affleck, I guess. Yeah, or but, no. I mean, to be mm. fair, he wrote this before Rise of Skywalker. All right. uh, I, I, uh, we, we, we keep giving control to the guy who won a screenwriting Oscar for Goodwill Hunting and the guy who won a screenwriting Oscar for Argo. Like, just make better choices, Hollywood. All right, David, you got to go. We all got to go. Are you Martian Manhunter? I'm Martian Manhunter. Got to go. Bye. <laughs> I got to you're out. Uh, sorry. I just one, wanted to say I watched everything and was cool with it. The one thing I w- <laughs> w- wanted says? to say about that scene is why, if if Martian Manhunter showed up your door, you've never seen him before, <laughs> but Batman's kind of like, okay. Uh-huh. But if someone was like, they call me Martian Manhunter, I'd have a lot of questions about that. <laughs> yeah. Do you, you hunt men? Man? I'm a man. The most dangerous game. <laughs> Do you hunt men, sir? I mean, there's really Are no you, other you're way from to Mars? That name, and that no. he's from Mars and he hunts men. I would or be afraid. Or he hunts men who are I on would Mars? grab he a gun. Men? That character, once again, Zack Snyder fails on introducing a character, would have Katie. absolutely introduced himself as John, not Martian Manhunter. Yes. Katie, if someone showed up at your door and said, Hey, uh, I'm the American woman hunter, would you feel like, Okay, cool, great to meet you? <laughs> yeah, well, actually, <laughs> what he says door. is, They call me Martian Manhunter, right. which then oh. raised the question of, Who are they? The My men you killed? Who? Who knows about you? <laughs> Were those My their last words Kevin. before you stabbed them? Or something? What do you know? What do you know about the mother boxes? Oh, I could have, I could have used this information a couple months ago. A perfect I'm just ending. Say, of a all perfect the times ending. to be living in a big old glass house that seems to have absolutely no security whatsoever. <laughs> Not yeah, ideal. Yeah, because he's turning the old mansion into the Justice League headquarters. It's dumb. Great. It's dumb. It's dumb. And we'll always are there, have are, are there, all right, all right, last question. Are the Snyder Cut people just rejoicing? Like, are they, is yes. everyone, are they all happy yeah. with this? Yep, up this until today where the head of Warner Brothers is like, and we're not making any sequels, and now they're mad again. Oh, good, okay. What a surprise. Yeah, two uh, people have tweeted, two, two people have, yeah, pe- two people have tweeted at me, uh, Restore the Snyderverse, after restore tweeting about uh, uh, Batman's late front mansion. So mm-hmm. I have, uh, the Snyder Cut people have found me at long last. I'm going to regret everything. Okay. Good stuff. Uh, 
All right, that does it for this week's show. Next week, we're going to switch it up a little bit. I think we had said we would talk about Search Party. We're going to put that off a little bit. Next week, we're talking about another round. Nominated for Best Director Academy Award and Best International Feature Film. It is a Danish film. It is uh, on... It's on Hulu. I think you have to rent. Oh, on Hulu. There you go. So find it on Hulu alongside Nomadland. Probably a good double feature, honestly. Um, In the meantime, tell the people who you are. I'm Martian Manhunter. <laughs> Goodbye. Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Matt Patches, senior editor at Polygon. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Patches. We have a website where you can listen to last week's episode, uh, a year ago's episode, lots of episodes if you want to catch up. Fightinginthewarroom.com. Uh, I'm David Ehrlich. I'm the from critic at IndieWire. You can find me on IndieWire this week writing a lot, a lot about Wong Kar Wai. Uh, and his new World of Wong Kar Wai box set from Criterion. You can find me on Twitter, David Ehrlich. Uh, you can find all of us on iTunes. You can leave us a review. We'll read it live on the show. E- uh, you can use that space to fill in our blind spots, particularly if you do so as articulately as our listener did at the start of this episode. Uh, you can wedge your way into segments that we didn't plan on having within, uh, I think, certain parameters. Um and we always appreciate hearing from you and, as Patrick said, making the show better and, for our end, making the show more popular because it helps us in iTunes. So go on iTunes, Fighting in the War Room. We're not above it. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at DA7E. Uh, there I will be tweeting about nonsense pop culture stuff and uh, my other podcast, The Storm Lost Rewatch Podcast, where we are rewatching Lost as the title implies. We're going to finish it up this year and then have to become something else. But we got a lot of crazy loss to get through before we get there. Wow, 2021, I can't believe it. Uh, I'm Katie Rich. You can find me at Vanity Ferret on the Little Gold Men podcast, where this week, uh, Joanna Robinson, friend of you and me, interviewed Riz Ahmed. Uh, I haven't heard it yet, but that's going to be great. Um, you can find me on Twitter, A-K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H, and we're all on Twitter at F-I-T-W-R, where you can tell us what your uh, Martian Manhunter name would be if you were to fly into someone's house and introduce yourself. Or you can answer this week's lightning round question, which was... What comedian needs to become an action hero? Thanks for listening, and we'll be back talking to you next week. I'm done.